Welcome back to Curbside Consults, where we break down practice-changing research from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Fernandez, one of this year's editorial fellows at the NEJM. On today's episode, we will be taking a deeper dive into the literature behind anticoagulation for the treatment of venous thromboembolism, or VTE, in patients with cancer. 20 to 30% of first-time VTE events are cancer-associated, and patients with cancer have a four to seven fold higher risk of developing VTE than patients without cancer. But this gets complicated as these patients are also at higher risk for bleeding. On today's episode, we will delve into this further and discuss what the risk factors are for developing VTE in patients with cancer, what tools we have to assess this risk, and what evidence we have for thromboprophylaxis in patients with cancer. Joining us today in discussion is our expert hematologist, Dr. Jean Connors from the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Connors. Thank you for having me here. We have a lot to cover, so let's just kind of start off with a case. So you see Mrs. Jones. She's a 55-year-old lady who was recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She's had surgery and is now receiving adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, so she's coming into clinic to see you for follow-up and is doing pretty well. She met a friend through one of her cancer support groups, and her friend recently had a clot and had a prolonged hospitalization. So she's heard the horror stories behind that and is coming to you asking you, well, what's her risk of developing venous thromboembolism and how does she prevent getting one? So before we try to give her advice, let's take a step back and talk about why patients with cancer are at increased risk of actually developing venous thromboembolism. Well, there are multiple mechanisms, Amanda, for why patients with cancer develop venous thromboembolism. And these patients can even develop arterial thrombosis with certain types of malignancies. Verkau's triad, as we all are familiar in the even non-cancer population, which includes hypercoagulability, venous stasis, and endothelial damage, all of these three events of the triangle occur in patients with cancer. So many types of cancers induce a hypercoagulable state. They cause a pro-inflammatory reaction, pro-clotting factors increase. Some cancers in particular, particularly mucin-producing adenocarcinomas, like you might find with pancreatic cancer or gastric cancer, will increase and actually directly activate coagulation. Okay. So we have that hypercoagulability aspect. We then have a lot of solid tumors or lymphomas that cause the growth of masses that can actually directly compress blood vessels. So whenever the component of Verkau's triad venous stasis occurs, the blood is flowing more slowly, that sets the patient up for getting a blood clot as well. And the third factor has to do with vascular endothelial damage. And most of the treatments that we give patients disrupt the vascular endothelium. So chemotherapy will cause changes in the vascular endothelium and damage it as will surgeries. Many patients with cancer require biopsies, or they may have a central access catheter placed that all of these can result in damage and lead to to venous blood clots. You've mentioned some of the risk factors that put patients with cancer at risk for developing a VTE. Do we have any tools to assess risk? There have been at least four cancer risk assessment scores to try to predict risk of VTE, and they all incorporate a variety of different components. Most of them key on being primarily the type of cancer. And so pancreatic cancer, gastric cancer, and ovarian cancer, because of the type of cancer they are, 
potentially because of some of the treatments associated, have a much higher risk of developing clots than, say, somebody with breast cancer or prostate cancer. And so that already sort of gives you an idea that the patient um, is at higher risk. When we look at some of the biologic markers, people are desperately looking for biomarkers to try to identify risk. In the cancer population, this is somewhat difficult to do. The D-dimer, for example, is a great uh, pretest probability test for predicting pulmonary embolus. And if you're in the emergency room and someone comes in with shortness of breath, and you can do a D-dimer and try to decide whether or not you should do a PECT scan. Elevated D-dimer suggests a high pretest pre-CT scan probability of having a PE. The D-dimer test doesn't work very well in cancer patients because of all of the factors that I discussed with the hypercoagulability of cancers in Verkhaus triad and because of treatments. So again, surgical interventions and chemotherapy, the D-dimer at baseline is elevated in cancer patients and we don't have a good way to identify um, where a cutoff might be. So for cancer patients, the D-dimer is not so great. So circling back to your original question, how do we approach a patient? Right now, the Corana risk assessment score is the best validated score. And how was that designed to be used? That was designed to be used um, for patients who have newly diagnosed cancer before they start chemotherapy treatments or radiation treatment. And you take a look at the type of cancer. And if you have a high-risk cancer, such as gastric cancer or pancreatic cancer, you get two points. If you have an intermediate-risk type cancer, like lung cancer, lymphoma, gynecologic ovarian cancers, bladder cancer, or testicular cancer, you get one point. All other types of cancers have a much lower risk of getting a blood clot, and they're not included in the scoring system. But now we look at clinical lab variables like the platelet count, and a platelet count greater than 350,000 is associated with an increased risk of developing blood clots. And the platelet count may be increased because of uh, inflammatory cytokines that the tumor either elaborates itself or induces the body to produce, or other inflammatory reasons to drive up the platelet count. Similarly, a low hemoglobin level before chemotherapy, and this is very important for people to know, it's you need to uh, apply their corona risk assessment score before people have gotten treatment. Because as you know, chemotherapy can drop the hematocrit. So uh, a hemoglobin less than 10 is also associated with pretty strong inflammatory response to the presence of the cancer or even metastases to the bone marrow. And so both of those things give a patient a higher risk for developing a blood clot. And similarly, the white count falls in line with that as well. It's a marker of state of inflammation and possible cytokine drive that can also cause activation of coagulation. The last factor on the corona risk assessment score is one that we use in, in the non-cancer patient population setting as well, and that's body mass index. People, when they see a patient with a blood clot, wonder if they should do a thrombophilia screen for inherited thrombophilia. And the risk of getting a blood clot, the odds ratio for uh, heterozygous prothrombin gene mutation is roughly about 2.5%. There's a bit of a range around that. But if your BMI is greater than 30 or 35%, your risk for getting a blood clot is just as high as somebody. And 39% of the U.S. population on the last census count is obese with a BMI greater than 30. 
So that's an important risk factor because I often see patients in my clinic in hematology after they've been diagnosed with cancer and after they've started chemotherapy and they develop a blood clot and I've seen BMIs as high as 60. And I look at this patient and say, forget even the corona risk assessment score, just based on BMI alone, I might have considered VTE prophylaxis. Why do we want to prophylax? Getting back to um, all of the variables you discussed, cancer patients are four to seven times more likely to develop a clot. VTE, venous thromboembolism, is the second leading cause of death in patients with cancer. The primary cause is their malignancy, but the second leading cause of death is um, VTE. And that is why I think the latest work using direct oral anticoagulants as prophylaxis is very important to move the field along and more effectively treat our patients. Okay. So just to quickly summarize, you do not recommend using D-dimer because there's not a lot of evidence for it because patients with cancer already are at, already have an elevated D-dimer because of their baseline cancer. And then in terms of looking at the patient, you want to look at their weight, and then you can look at some of these biomarkers and the types of cancer that they have to kind of assess whether or not they would benefit from venous thromboprophylaxis. Yeah. And that's, again, we need to clarify before actually starting chemotherapy. Because as you know, chemotherapy will influence the hemoglobin and the platelet count. When are patients with cancer most likely to develop a venous thromboembolism? Is it during the initial part of their diagnosis or does timing not matter? Timing matters. And some of the earlier trials that I alluded to, the PROTECT and SAVE Onco trials, believe at least the PROTECT trial was, uh, duration was only three months. So there are some def great epidemiologic studies looking at timing of development of VTE. And it is clearly highest in the first three months. When patients are first diagnosed with cancer, a significant proportion of patients actually present with a blood clot and then are found to have cancer. And the first three months, in addition to um, getting perhaps a biopsy or surgical resection and initiating chemotherapy, those factors increase the risk in the first three months, although it accumulates over time. Okay, perfect. So let's actually just move along and talk about what the current guidelines say about treatment for venous thromboprophylaxis. Is the current recommendation to treat or not to treat? Basically, sort of a new paradigm and a new approach in the care of cancer patients. We have two new trials just been published uh, that look at using the new direct oral anticoagulants in highly selected patients. There were trials that were performed in the past and published, one of them in the New England Journal, the PROTECT trial and the SAVE Onco trial. And these trials used low molecular weight heparin to prevent VTE in cancer patients. But they took patients with um, all types of cancers and all kinds of risk levels based on scoring systems. And those patients who had lower risk for developing uh, blood clots as well as those with higher risk. So although the low molecular weight heparin decreased the risk of developing a blood clot by 50%, the overall occurrence of blood clots in the population was very low somewhere between 3 to 5%. And so people did not want to adopt the use of low molecular weight heparin in every cancer patient. Now, when we're looking, we have more data. We have the validated corona risk assessment score, which I will discuss. So the guidelines today are pretty explicit with regard to a certain type of cancer, uh, multiple myeloma. 
and the use of thalidomide derivatives, which are clearly associated with a strong increased risk of VTE. So all of the society guidelines, uh, the ACCP, ASCO, ESMO, all agree that cancer patients who have multiple myeloma getting treated with chemotherapy that puts them at high risk for VTE should get thromboprophylaxis. They don't all agree with what type of thromboprophylaxis, but at least there's agreement for that category of patients. All other types of variables associated with a cancer patient, um, there are no strong statements endorsing the use of thromboprophylaxis in any other category. The NEGM recently published two trials looking at the use of direct oral anticoagulation for thromboprophylaxis in patients with cancer. Dr. Connors, can you walk us through both these trials, their design, and what they found? Let's start with the AVERT trial. So the AVERT trial was performed by Mark Carrier and his colleagues in Canada, and they applied the Corona risk assessment score to their patients and took patients with a score equal to two or greater and enrolled them in this thromboprophylaxis trial. They had to be starting a chemotherapy regimen. They had to have, by default, a somewhat higher risk malignancy based on the Corona score. And they randomized patients to receive a Pixaban at a prophylactic dose of 2.5 milligrams twice a day or placebo in a blinded fashion. And they followed these patients for six months looking at the primary outcome of uh, development of venous thrombosis um, and also looked at the safety outcome for bleeding. And they found that if you looked at the intention to treat or modified intention to treat outcome, patients treated with apixaban had a 59% reduced risk of developing VTE compared to those patients with placebo. The actual number was 4.2% of patients treated with apixaban developed a VTE versus 10.2% treated with some minor difference in the major bleeding rate. Major bleeding in these trials that we're going to be discussing um, is uh, scored about on the ISTH criteria for major bleeding, which includes a drop in hemoglobin by 2 grams per deciliter or the need for transfusion of two units of packed red cell bleeding into a critical space such as into the eye, into the brain, into the spinal cord, or hemodynamic instability. So in the AVERT trial, patients treated with apixaban had a 3.5% rate of bleeding compared to placebo, which was 1.8, although this was not statistically significant. So let's then talk about the Cassini trials. This is also randomized double-blind placebo control, but this was a multi-centered trial from my understanding, not just a Canadian study, but done internationally. Let's talk a little bit about the details of this study now. The details and the study schema are critical um, to understand and appreciate when you're looking at the end results because the Cassini trial did uh, something very different from the AVERT trial. So they took eligible patients, they took cancer patients, they applied the corona risk assessment score just like they did in AVERT, and, and they took patients who had a score of two or higher to as possible um, subjects in the trial. But before randomizing these patients, they actually perform compression ultrasound. And at that time point, and these are asymptomatic patients that are being considered for VTE prophylaxis, 4.5% of the patients had VTE in the lower extremity. So that changes the population that's entering the trial. The investigators may have 
sort of uh, screen the population and remove those at highest risk for VTE because we, they've already had a VTE and that cohort is now gone. Screen them. They screen them. Yeah. So yeah. by screening, they already identified people at high risk for VTE. They had a VTE and that population was excluded. So, you know, as time goes by, people become more symptomatic when they develop VTE. So they may have changed the natural history of the cohort of patients in the Cassini trial by doing that. The other thing that the investigators did in Cassini was they did um, serial ultrasounds in patients. So every eight weeks, patients got a compression ultrasound looking for clots, which is a little different from the AVERT trial where they waited for patients to develop symptoms or uh, looking for blood clots. So slightly different design that way. In terms of baseline characteristics of who these patients actually had, they definitely included patients who had a chronoscope greater than two, but what about the kinds of cancers? Was there a difference between yes. that and the AVERT trial? Excellent point. And I think, you know, we don't want to compare these trials head to head for the reasons that I've already discussed, but I think together they add a significant amount of knowledge about different patient cohorts. So um, the AVERT trial, both AVERT and Cassini had patients with a coroner risk assessment score of two or greater. However, in the AVERT trial, there was a significant proportion of patients with lymphoma, somewhere around 20% or so. And in the Cassini trial, there was a much higher proportion of patients with pancreatic cancer, which is one of the most pro-thrombotic cancers uh, we have. So those population differences, I think, might have driven uh, differences in outcomes, but we still can't get over the identification of 4.5% of patients prior to randomization having a clot. And that may again be because they have pancreatic cancer or they have a high risk for developing clots. I think both trials had a similar proportion of patients with metastatic disease. Patients with metastatic disease are more likely to develop clots because they have a more advanced cancer, more cancer burden, higher inflammatory markers, and higher risk for VTE. And so what were the main findings from the actual Cassini trial? So the Cassini trial found, if you looked at the intention to treat analysis, uh, there was a difference in, a numeric difference, in development of VTE between the patients treated with rivaraxaban versus placebo. So remember, AVERT used apixaban, Cassini randomized patients to rivaraxaban, 10 milligrams once a day. And in the ITT analysis, patients treated with rivaraxaban for six months had 5.9% development of VTE compared to 8.79% in patients on placebo. Now, this difference was not statistically significant. And the investigators want to point out that something like 35 or 37% of the VTE events that occurred in the rivaraxaban arm were in patients who had discontinued the drug. So just like in the AVERT trial, the Cassini trial had a very high rate of discontinuation. Again, surprising, because this is a placebo-controlled trial, and they had just as many patients stop on the placebo arm as they did in rivaroxaban. As a matter of fact, 43.7% of the rivaroxaban arm discontinued uh, in Cassini, whereas 50% of patients taking placebo discontinued in the Cassini trial. Both the trials, the Cassini and the AVERT trial, had a very high dropout rate. What do we make of the high dropout rate? Well, I think that speaks to the complexity of care of these patients. These are patients with cancer. Um, They are very sick. 
And when we look at the types of cancers that are at highest risk for VTE in the Corona score, these are patients who often have some sort of intra-abdominal process. They have pancreatic cancer, which is adjacent to the stomach. They get chemotherapy that is induces nausea and vomiting so that it may be difficult for them to continue to take pills on top of their other treatment regimens. Again, if we look at the non-cancer population, we don't see dropout rates in VTE trials or atrial fibrillation trials. And, you know, most practitioners see their patients on anticoagulation for VTE or atrial fibrillation once a year sometimes. But with a cancer patient, we have them come in sometimes every week. So between the cancer itself and possible pain and disruption um, to the GI tract and nausea vomiting, the chemotherapy we add, radiation, travel, pain control with narcotics, it can become difficult to swallow that one last pill, even if it's placebo. So there's a lot of things. A lot of things going on with very sick patients. Okay. So we talked about the intention to treat in the Cassini trial and that there was no significant difference between the rivaroxaban and the placebo group. What about the on-treatment or the per-protocol? What did they find for that part? Well, in that situation, there was a significant difference between the rivaroxaban-treated and the placebo-treated patients. Um, there was a 60% reduction in VTE in those patients who were able to take the rivaroxaban for six months compared to those taking placebo. So patients who took placebo had 6.41% of them developed a VTE compared to 2.62% in the rivaroxaban-treated arm. And that is huge. Now, again, people will look at, is there bias in the population because were we selecting for less sick patients? You know, how do we tease out that difference between the PER protocol and the ITT? We cannot discount the contribution of already screening out patients who had uh, asymptomatic VTE at the beginning of the trial, and that may have changed the recurrence risk in the population in the ITT. The AVERT trial has already come up, and the Cassini trial was just recently published. Will these trials change how you practice in terms of using direct oral anticoagulants? Well, that's an excellent question, and that's a question that the entire field is grappling with right now. And when we look at the patient population, getting back to one of your earlier questions about types of patients in the trial, 60%, roughly 60% in both uh, AVERT and Cassini were Corona risk score of 2 and corona risk score of three, which is a higher risk for VTE, had approximately 20%, and then scores above that were even lower numbers. And so I think the breakpoint of where we would start prophylactic anticoagulation according to the corona risk assessment score is the difficult one to make. Um, as we can see, it's difficult for patients to adhere to prophylaxis. There's some increased risk in bleeding um, that was seen in the AVERT trial. Um, there was increased clinically relevant non-major bleeding in the Cassini trial. And so we have to factor that into the patient's whole picture and do not only apply the corona risk assessment score, but also factor in their potential risk for bleeding and the ease of compliance. So I think not everybody is going to be able to or want to apply the use of DOAX um, in a cancer patient with a corona risk assessment score of 2. I do think that these data clearly demonstrate that DOAC are effective. 
and that rivaraxaban and apixaban are effective for prophylaxis. So if you're faced with a patient in whom you have, you think they have a high risk for VTE, you can safely use rivaraxaban or apixaban. Don't need to use a parenteral uh, agent, a low molecular weight heparin, which significantly increases a patient's quality of life. Which patient we actually select for prophylaxis, I think still needs to be refined a bit. Certainly, if I see a patient like our patient at the beginning of the story, Mrs. Jones with pancreatic cancer, you know, if she has a body mass index greater than 30, if she's ever had a VTE or a family history of VTE in the past, or has other risk factors, you know, the location of the tumor, the type of chemotherapy, any possible radiation, mobility, I would be more likely to use VTE prophylaxis using either rivaroxaban or apixaban based on the results from Avert or Cassini. Do we have any tools to assess risk of bleeding? We've talked about risk for clotting, but what about risk for bleeding in patients with cancer? So we actually do not have any cancer-specific risk scores, and it's an excellent question, and it's something that the field needs to address because we've realized even the major bleeding risk assessment scores, the ISTH, the TIMI, the GUSTO, they don't really apply to cancer patients because cancer patients can have a drop in hemoglobin of two grams per deciliter simply because of chemotherapy. Um, and then if they present with some bleeding, it's hard to tease out, you know, is the drop in hematocrit and hemoglobin due to bleeding or is it due to the chemotherapy? So um, similarly, when we look at things like the HasBled score, the factors that they're looking at in the HasBled score don't apply to our cancer chemotherapy patients. So what we look at in an unscored way are things like history of bleeding, recent history of bleeding, recent surgery, perioperative um, bleeds, that type of thing. How close are we to surgery? And should we start VTE prophylaxis depending on, you know, maybe they had major bowel resection with tumor a week ago? I might hold off another week or two before assigning that. Thank you. We've talked a lot about venous thromboprophylaxis in patients with cancer. This is probably another podcast on its own, but a separate topic to talk about is treatment of patients who already have a clot. For that, is the evidence more straightforward in terms of what we can use? The goal of prophylaxis is to prevent patients from getting a clot because, as we discussed, there's a high morbidity and mortality associated with it. It's the second leading cause of death, and patients often have to delay their treatment if they get a clot. Once somebody has a clot, we need to give them full-intensity anticoagulation. And the gold standard has been low molecular weight heparin ever since Aggie Lee's publication in the New England Journal in 2003. We now have data that suggests that the direct oral anticoagulants are as effective, if not more effective, than preventing recurrent VTE in patients with cancer who've developed a clot. But there are some caveats about that. One of the uh, biggest studies that was performed and published in the New England Journal as well, the Hakasai VTE cancer trial, um, was published in December 2017, took just over 1,000 patients with cancer-associated VTE who met the eligibility criteria and randomized those patients to adoxaban versus low-molecular weight heparin after they had five days of a low-molecular weight heparin, and then they got adoxaban. And a lot of details we could talk about the study design, but basically patients treated with adoxaban had a lower rate of recurrent VTE compared to daltaparin, which was the comparator low molecular weight heparin. 
which was fantastic. But this was offset by an increased risk of bleeding in patients, particularly those in, who had GI tract malignancies, esophageal, gastric cancers, but even patients who had lower GI tract cancers, such as colon cancer or colorectal cancer, those patients uh, also had an increased risk of bleeding with adoxaban. This was somewhat surprising. And when we sit back and we sort of look at why would patients with GI tract cancers have a higher rate of bleeding? Well, when a patient is taking a pill form of anticoagulation, um, they have a high local concentration of anticoagulant in the gut. And that may affect bleeding risk. Patients who have GI tract malignancies may have an active lesion in the gut that might be more likely to bleed. They may have had recent resection and have uh, problems with anastomosis areas and have bleed from those areas. And it's also felt that the type of chemotherapy that we give patients with GI tract malignancies actually damages the gut mucosa and makes it more likely to bleed. So I think for patients who do not have GI tract malignancy, we can feel comfortable using edoxaban. The SELECT-D trial was a much smaller trial that used rivaroxaban compared to daltaparin. It was published in May 2018 in JCO. And in that trial, again, we saw a decrease with rivaroxaban in terms of recurrent VTE compared to daltaparin, but an increased risk of GI tract bleeding. And in that trial, interestingly, that trial had 406 patients. The Data Safety Monitoring Board actually halfway through the trial told the investigators to stop enrolling patients with esophageal and gastric cancers because of the high rate of bleeding. So I think if our patient does develop a VTE, she has pancreatic cancer, not quite in the GI tract, but we need to be concerned about risk of bleeding, not necessarily recurrent VTE. Thanks so much. We've covered a lot of different points today, so let's summarize the main clinical takeaway points for our listeners today. Thank you, Amanda. I would love to. And before I even get to that point, I saw a patient two days ago whose wife was astounded. He had metastatic adenocancer, and he developed a DVT, and they had ignored some leg pain that he had had for a while. And she said, why don't people tell us that VTE could be associated with cancer? So we all know that patients with cancer have an increased risk, and I think we need to work to educate um, our colleagues about this risk so that when patients present to non-oncologists, non-hematologists, that clinicians are aware that it is a risk. Getting back to our own particular patients, when we need to look at particularly those patients who have high-risk cancers when they're first diagnosed, so particularly pancreatic cancer, gastric cancer, those patients with lung cancer, um, particularly ALK gene rearranged lung cancer seems to have a higher risk. We have to take that and look at the other milieu of the patient, including body mass index and other factors that might contribute to VTE, and seriously consider using prophylaxis in those patients who have a high corona risk score and even added factors on top of the corona risk assessment score. We then, I think, can feel comfortable based on the AVERT and Cassini trial that if we want to use a direct oral anticoagulant, we can use apixaban or rivaroxaban at the prophylactic doses to prevent VTE. Getting the patients to adhere different is story. a different story. Exactly. Thanks a lot, Dr. Connors, for joining us in conversation as we take a deeper dive into the papers recently published at the NEJAM. 
I hope we've given our listeners a bit more insight into both aspects of clinical practice and a point of access to the primary literature. If you want more information, please visit our oncology guide for VTE at resident360.nejm.org. I want to thank our expert today, Dr. Jean Connors. Our production team here at NEJM Resident 360 include Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to Dr. Angela Cassianos and Dr. Angela Chen, my co-editorial fellows at the NEJM this year, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. Opie Hemenvik. Because this is a new series and we're trying something new, we want your feedback. Please email us at resin360 at nejm.org. Leave a message or review wherever you get your podcasts, or feel free to reach out to us via NEJM Resin360 website. We are also accessible via various social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the NEJM.org pages. I'm Dr. Amanda Fernandez, Editorial Fellow at the NEJM. Please join us again for our next episode.